Hello, this is the Performance Club Roundtable, our far more topical and casual podcast, certainly a lot more than the main show. It still deals with cycling performance, it's just a little chattier and it's a little more like us discussing and thinking out loud about cycling performance topics. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Right, I've brought a topic to the table this week that obviously a lot of pro cyclists don't like discussing and it's not something I like to have to answer too many questions about which... Unfortunately, it's just part of the sport and that topic is doping. So I thought I'd get my thoughts out there today because I do have some pretty strong thoughts on this and I think not many uh, people are getting a good insight into what's going on because so few pros actually like to talk about it. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. But firstly, it's been a while since we've actually sat down and recorded something uh damien's on holidays now this is just before christmas when we're recording but uh jason thought i'd actually check in and you can let the listeners know what you've been up to i'll let i want to hear your news first you've got the bigger news well yeah uh, and it segues into the topic much better (laughs) yeah the this year uh i well if if people haven't been on social media i've signed a contract for the next two years with q36.5 pro cycling team so yes definitely the the biggest team that i'll i have ever ridden for and i'm super excited for the the next few years with that it's a big step up in terms of the structure of the team having a, a salary for a change from the riding which would be quite nice something to live off and then uh yeah just the level of racing that i'll be doing is going to be next level so to speak so it'll be pretty pretty cool opportunity and i'm super excited to get into it but the other side of that now is that after the last four years coaching myself, I'm now being coached, which is interesting and will give us a bit to talk about, I think, on the podcasts. Um, so, yeah, that's going to give us a bit to talk about. Hopefully get a few contacts to bring onto the show as well throughout that time. I'm not sure if we'll be able to get Vincenzo on here at any time soon, who's Vincenzo Nibali is working with the team, but we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, it's very exciting and I'm looking forward to to sharing some stories throughout the year. Yeah, that is a really big step up for you, and I'm super happy for you. And I know we announced it on social media, but uh, maybe some of the listeners don't necessarily watch that very closely but um, or missed it. But, yeah, very cool stuff. Um, and actually, I think heavily inspired by you, <laughs> um, I started reaching out to some te- uh, pro teams as well. And... Uh, yeah, um, I was able to get um, get a few conversations, get my foot in the door with a few teams. Um, nothing came out of it, but uh, it was just neat to have those conversations. And uh, yeah, still a free agent. And uh, so happy to have that conversation with the teams if they're looking for people uh, to do basically the most of the, most of the um, I guess, jobs or the roles I was looking at were like trainers and training optimization specialists, type, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, those good connections. And um, actually got a chance to talk with your lead principal, uh, Doug Ryder, very put together dude, super cool guy. Um, um, 
I think I think he's doing a really good job with his team, and I like his vision and everything like that. I also got a chance to listen to his interview on uh, the press room with Jethro Nagel. So if anyone's interested in hearing um, more about your team principal, that's a good episode to check out. That just came out uh, about a month ago or so. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we're at. Like, um, I guess both of us, you made the move and I'm looking at it going like, this seems like a good <laughs> move to make. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm obviously still taking on athletes right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, it's cool stuff going on in that world. Exciting stuff. But, um, I guess, um, with that, um, there's the dark side of the sport, right? Uh, and I think most of the teams are anti-doping, <laughs> you would think. But uh, how did you start to think about this? Yeah, so the it obviously it seems to rear its head pretty regularly within our sport, within a lot of sports too. I add like any professional sport is in a better place than it's ever been in terms of income like uh cycling maybe um has had possibly more in the past with the biggest stars and that they can't some of that's come away from the doping i think it's really rising back up there now like the it's obviously well off the american sports levels of money but um the the thing when you've got people playing for playing for sheep stations or racing for sheep stations, as we say here. Um, do you have that in America, Jason, racing for sheep stations? No. So Thank you guys. Uh, no. if, you, if you're racing for sheep stations, it means it's a big deal. It's, there's, a, no. there's a bit on the line. So, yeah, the, when you've got that, the, the, uh, the benefit to the winning, like if, if you get the win, there's a, a lot to win. So the, the downside of the, that and you get some cheating. Yeah. And it could be even more in cycling, I think, too, for for some reasons. One of them being like, all right, so if you're on a team sport and there's, you know, uh, team A versus team B, one of those te- two teams is going to win. Yep. Right? So every week the sponsors of that team have a chance to see a win. But yep. um, it could, which could be a coin flip. Obviously, it's not exactly a coin flip, but... Um, but when you do pro cycling, how many teams are, are yeah. in every race, right? So. Yeah. And uh, the other thing with the difference with cycling is that there's not actually a lot of luck. Like we say always that there's a lot of luck involved, but really there's uh, it's first across the line wins. And so if you go faster than someone else up a hill, you're going to mm-hmm. beat them across the line and win. And there's only a certain amount of ways to go faster up a hill than someone else. Um, and Ultimately, once now that everyone's on quite similar bikes um, and quite similar setups with everything else, you've got to be putting more power through the pedals. Best way to do that is to have better physiology than your opponent. And yeah, mm-hmm. training is a great way to do that. Unfortunately, another great way to do that is doping. We had Jerome Dempsey on uh, one of the previous episodes. Yeah. He cited how effective doping is. Uh, there's plenty of studies, which I'm sure we'll reference a few during this, uh, this recent ones that just just come out um just year that we we're just looking over with uh even micro dosing but the yeah it is quite effective uh, and unfortunately yeah. when you have something that's quite effective uh at getting that win even despite it being illegal 
illegal, uh, there's going to be people that use it. So the, this year, Quintana was probably the biggest one at the Tour de France, uh, not doping as we've seen it before. That was use of tramadol, a painkiller. Uh, and then Lopez has just recently been sacked, Miguel Angel Lopez uh, from Astana for just an association with a doctor. Now, uh, there's been a bit drawn into that of this doctor as being someone that has helped riders dope in the past. And there is, uh, like, some people have come down saying, well, how do you know that uh, this means this? I've just signed a contract with a team and within signing that part of the anti-doping program that every rider has to do, there is a list of people that we can't be associated with. So, uh Ferrari, Dr. Ferrari, who was Lance's doctor, is top of the list. Even Johan Brunel, hmm. like you can't be associated with these people that have uh, had such a big role in systematic doping among teams or riders before. So the the responsibility always comes onto the rider at the end of the day. And that's why why he's received a sanction from the team. Um, Quintana as well, yeah, disqualified from, from the race. Uh, just Yesterday, I saw in the news Chantel Vandenbroek Black, one of the a former women's world champion, road race road race champion. She uh, there was just a, a test that popped up from two thousand and eight with the use of a masking agent. So it's it's always going to pop up. Uh, media love writing the stories because they get clicks. Um, people love jumping on there, and then yes, a lot of the comments when you look on their cycling news articles or cycling tips articles is just people saying, oh, they're all still doing it. You're an idiot if you think that pros aren't still doing it. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Jason, you're, you haven't been worked in a pro team yet um, and have dealt uh, to this day with uh, amateur athletes who are not doping. So when from the outside, what are you thinking about the current state of play of doping within the pro peloton? Um, one thing I'll add to back up real quick is the, with the, uh, one little bit that's in the whole, this doping kind of chain and why it could be much more prevalent in cycling is the, the arguments I make about how important the engine is for, yeah. um, for endurance athletes and cyclists. And so doping has a direct effect on your engine and your ability to put out power, yeah. your ability to put out power has a direct, um, correlation, um, with your ability to win races. Yeah. So it, it's just such, it, it's not like taking testosterone as maybe like a golfer. Okay. Yeah. yeah you can say like, um, or maybe something that's a little bit more skilled based, like badminton. Yeah. Right. Like, okay. The testosterone will help you, uh, recover better and, and that type of thing. But it's not, I guess, for lack of a better word, like mathematical, Yeah. right? Badminton should also ban doping, right? Yeah. But it's not near like the, the connection to I dope there. And here's my, here's the benefit. Yeah. Um, it just isn't nearly as apparent in other sports. Yeah, the advantage is so big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, for surprisingly, I keep up more on the literature around this stuff more than I do around the actual sport you say surprisingly um, but that seems the same with most topics <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well this is why like you guys are good a, co- a good counterbalance to me on the show right like you and yeah. damien both 
are very heavy in the pro Peloton world. And I'm kind of like, what do you guys think about this? And they're like, that happened like a year or two ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's okay. From the outside looking in, um, yeah, I guess the we were talking a little bit before recording, and I guess like doping had a, a little bit of an effect on my history in cycling because about I got into cycling about two months before Lance won his first tour. And so I was just getting into it, just bought a bike, nothing fancy, had a mountain bike. But then I went on to college and I was racing in college and our team was in Wisconsin. It was our biggest main sponsor for the, for the college team at Whitewater was track bicycles, right? And track was sponsoring um, Lance at the time. And there's even pictures of my teammates with Lance at the truck factory, right? And so I never get a chance to meet him, but it was always that kind of presence. Um, all the bikes that we were buying through Trek had, you know, the, this is how many Tour de France's we've won on these bikes. And so there was just always that connection. And there was no doubt like he was a hero for many and there in the U S we have something that was called the Lance effect and racing and cycling became very popular because of Lance. Um, and that whole, you know, and Trek built their brand off of that. And we all know where that went. Right. And seven tour de France is that he, the, he won seven tour de France. Um, but obviously he's scrubbed from the record now, but, some will also make the argument that everyone was doping that, but it, I mean, that doesn't make it any more uh, less um, illegal or, uh, or doesn't make it that he wasn't cheating. So yeah, th- that, that was a really heartbreaking thing just to have that, to be there with Lance for about the first decade, right. Of my cycling, um, not career, but like my progression through the sport and while I was racing and all that. And then just, then, you know, you just didn't want to believe it. It really, you know, that's what sucks, right? Is that you have this American that came back from cancer and won all these Tour de France's and put you, the U S on the map in terms of cycling again after, um, Le Mans. And then that happened. Um, and yeah, that's uh, you know, one of my doping stories, I guess, is just how that affected me and a lot of other Americans that kind of came through um, cycling um, through the early 2000s. But, you know, I knew a guy that was racing in Texas when, when Lance was a junior. And he'd tell stories about like, you know, Lance was able to just like solo himself around crits by himself and lap the a grade field as like a junior right so it wasn't like he didn't have any talent mm. right he just took the you know so um and i always say like he, he performed a lot better because he lost all that weight after cancer and all that kind of stuff yada 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 but um yeah it again that's 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 the like 
was a lot of Australian listeners, but like, so maybe um, it would be like if, if Cadell or something like that was found out for, for doping, you know, or, or, or even more a sprinter and Animeus, yeah. Anna Mears. Yeah. She's national treasure for sure. Yeah. 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 So imagine if she got caught for doping. Yeah. Right. Like just crush. Yeah. destroys crush, the sport. Crush cycling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. So from that history, uh, obviously a lot of Americans especially are going to be pretty skeptical uh, and you being a skeptical person in, in general or coming at it, at things with a skeptical mindset. What is, yeah. What are you thinking now in terms of, okay, what, it's hard to talk percentages, but uh, obviously you do hear these stories, but are you thinking that there is some pretty high numbers of people doping in the pro peloton or are you thinking that it's changed since the Lance days? I don't think it's zero. Yeah. I, right, and I don't think it'll ever be zero. I think we can we can safely say it's not zero because we're, we're seeing still positive tests. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I'm just maybe naive. I always just like to have to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And, and I'm also kind of terrible at remembering numbers. And so that gets into like, if someone's like, well, this number here, do you think this person's doping VO2 max of this? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. What was the VO2 max before? How much did they train? And I think that would be for a lot of people because it's kind of an illicit thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a backroom thing. It's, it's a, a counter or not a counterculture but it's a it's a it's a black market type thing we don't have a lot of great data to see like what happens yeah but obviously we have the passport and all that kind of stuff and but um for me i again like i try to just give the benefit of the doubt but obviously if someone gets caught for doping and it's you know beyond a shadow of a doubt then they got caught for doping yeah right and i think part of the other thing i I don't know if you're the same as this, but you, you obviously being a physiologist, um, there's the element of being skeptical about um, performances, but there's also you want to believe in good physiology. So you want to believe, ah, oh, this person is actually the outlier that uh, says and a natural outlier. And it's natural is a stupid word to use because it's not natural to have a VO2 max of 90. It's They've got there through training and, and nutrition and all of these interventions, but you want to believe that they're all legal interventions um, mm-hmm. that are, are within the the same uh, boundaries that everyone else is using. But yeah, part of it is just thinking, well, like that's that's always my thing when people say, oh, how can this person be that good? The Everyone's physiology, like the, the points are all a normal curve, like a, a normal distribution. Uh, there's going to be outliers either side. There's going to be people with, with horrendous VO2 maxes. Um, that would never be able to get it even close to average. And then there's going to be people that, um, yeah, with with no training are well above average. And then when they're suddenly doing everything right, then they're going to be able to get to points that people haven't seen before and break records that people haven't before because they are those outliers. So I think, yeah, I don't know if you're the same, but me being passionate about physiology, I like to believe in the physiology. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, um, I was having a conversation with a mate over the weekend about doping. And for a little bit of background, before I moved here, there was a little bit of a scandal that happened in Perth. Did you ever hear about this? Uh, I've heard about some scandals in Perth. They're not necessarily cycling related, but go on. Yeah, well, 
from my understanding, none of the world tour riders were involved. Right. So this is just like a coach here. Um, and I had a brick and mortar coaching business and literally like across the hallway, I guess, um, there was a doctor who was an endocrinologist and, and the coach was like, Oh, you feel a little bit off. Maybe you should go get your endocrine levels checked. And, and all of a sudden he's in there and, and that blew up. That doctor was taking care of surprisingly a lot of athletes. And there's, there was a lot of like masters athletes in there who suspiciously were getting really fast. And I guess, uh, a physiologist that I know in town tested one of these guys. This is like secondhand. I didn't get it from him, but those, the numbers seem very unbelievable. So, so I guess if I saw those numbers and I had like, maybe I would also be able to pick it up, but to get to your point as a coach, and if you're really into your craft, which you and I both are, you really want to think that like those gains are from the athlete's dedication, yep. natural ability, and yep. your help. Yeah. Definitely. And if you're seeing big gains, you're like, oh, this is awesome. I am having a big part in this. Yeah. But it would just be crushing to find out yeah. that the athlete is is doping in that. Yeah. And for me, like I, I would imagine you have something similar, but like um, in my rider agreement, it's pretty explicit. Yeah. You get caught for doping. Yeah, it's done. It's, We're done. Yeah. Massive, massive page at the end of my first um, yeah. point of contact with an athlete. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, well, you have to do it because, so both of us have a lot to lose. Yeah. Yeah. That's the um, because if you get associated with a doper and you're a co and you're coaching yeah. and you're on a pro team, that's super anti-doping. And it's essentially just career done. Yeah, exactly. And the thing with me is like, you know, I went through a whole PhD so I could work with athletes and, and help them perform at their best level. You know, fuck if I, if I'm going to have some dude rock yeah. up that's doping and ruin all of that time that, and all of that education that I've put in to get here. Yeah. Right. So I don't even give a shit if this person is a world tour rider. Yeah. I'm like, we're done. Yeah. Right. So, but you get, you get it. Maybe you get another coach that isn't in our position and that's like their one shot. Yeah. And then they find out, oh, okay, like the numbers are looking funny here. What's going on? Yeah, there is so much to gain, but yeah, so much, so much to lose as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that's where uh, the thing sort of sits um, for a lot of athletes. Um, that yeah, like if if anyone gets close to that position, it's about weighing that up, and then you're just relying on most people just having the ethics there because as we're about to get into, like the the testing isn't perfect. It is so much better than it's ever been before. It will keep getting better than it's ever been before. There's always going to be the argument, and this is one of the most common ones that you see on social media, is that the, the Chiefs will always be ahead of the test. Um, and that mm-hmm. is one thing that Lance always said. But well, before we start going into that kind of thing, I just want to actually present the facts on what testing actually happens um, and how that works. So, Every UCR rider, any rider from a continental team or above, so third division to top, third division and onwards, I'd say now most national teams, like even just amateur teams, have stated in the contract that doping is not permitted within the team. So it's a UCR requirement, um, but most uh, even high-level amateur teams will just also add that in because as a team, it's just uh, it destroys a team as well if you are associated with doping. And then all riders are required to do 
So from the level that I'm stepping up to, pro team level uh, and world tour level, we're all required to do scheduled blood tests every three months as part of the biological passport program. So we'll discuss that a bit. But the idea behind that is there's some methods that of doping that are really hard to detect. And mm-hmm. the idea of the biological passport, I'm sure a lot of listeners would know this already, but you basically are just keeping track of things like hematocrit, hemoglobin, red blood cell count, uh, and then yeah, various other things as well that, that may be performance enhancing or even from a health perspective, um, you're keeping track of those every three months, every quarter, and that's all being recorded, transparent to the UCI and the team doctor. And basically, they're just looking for any discrepancies there. And then outside of that, um, every three months, because like, you just think, oh, well, of course, three months, you just slowly improve every three months. But then there's the regular in-competition blood and urine tests. So uh, most high-level competitions, there'll be doping control where it's often the races I've done will be podium, so first, second, third, and then two or three random tests. So whether they – and then the random is in quotation marks because, for example, like the random will often be the KOM jersey or someone that had a really good ride that day and just got caught after being in a breakaway the whole day. It might not necessarily be random, but the idea behind that is mm. to stop people just going, oh, well, I can just get fourth every day and I'll, for the rest of my career and I'll never have to test in competition. Um, and then also to get around the people just thinking, well, I'm not racing for three months, so I'm quite happy to to just do whatever I want. There's the wider yep. whereabouts program. So a lot of people um, might not actually know the extent of this, but every single day of the year, no matter what, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, like even if you're on a plane for 21 hours of the 24-hour day, you have to provide a one-hour window where you – are available for testing now the and that that address is provided where you'll be so most riders will do uh their home address like where they're staying overnight early in the morning uh, so that they know that they'll be there so that just means that testers can show up at any time so for example mine's at 5 a.m tomorrow morning testers could come now uh if i'm not here then it doesn't uh, there's no trouble for me that, but if I am here, I have to do a test no matter what. Um, so mm-hmm. it can still be even outside of that one hour window you've prescribed. But if you aren't there in the one hour window that you've specified, you get one strike. You're allowed three strikes per year. So the strikes is often like a lot of people might think, oh, well, that's like someone's got a strike because they've tried to to evade the testers or whatever, most of the time it's just someone like uh, staying at their girlfriend's overnight, forgetting to update their whereabouts thing. The testers rock up the next mm-hmm. morning and they can't make it back in time. That counts as a strike. So um, there, and it has happened before. So probably one of the highest profile was Lizzie Dignan, who won the first ever uh, Paris-Roubaix for women. She had three strikes in a year. Um, she just mm-hmm. missed missed that window three times. And I think it was a one-year ban. So, And then I think if it happens again, it's four years. But I think they might have even stepped that up as well. So um, I know a lot of riders that have just had like an admin error or just stuff up on their part and had a strike. And then it's the, the team gives you sort of a 
a tap on the shoulder because they they get alerted by the UCI. It's not made public uh, to everyone, but the team's alerted that this rider's missed um, a test. And then, yeah, so like the now within that, every rider has to be tested at least once per quarter um, by that whereabouts, so four times a year. I'm probably sitting at around the one or two times per quarter, the amount of times I get tested. But, like, again, this is supposedly random, but I know from speaking when I was in EF to some of the big names there, they're getting tested three or four times a week during the season and wow. it can become, like, a bit of a hassle for them. Like, they're, they'll they'll be picked in the Tour de France team and in that month before the Tour de France, they'll have to do something like 10, 15 tests. Um because oh, is it urine or blood or both? Uh, always urine, sometimes blood as well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, obviously, like when you start adding it, like that's what these riders were talking about. I remember the conversation one day. It was I'm getting worried about the amount of blood that I'm having to sacrifice here. Um, they mm-hmm. they managed to not they don't have to take too much for the tests that they run. But yeah, the amount that riders are getting tested is pretty crazy. I don't think people actually realize how often that is. Um, so. The thing for me is I'm um, no matter when when I do the test I'm always just there's that little bit in the back of my mind going what if something's been contaminated so I'm yet to that I know of ever take a banned substance but you do hear these horror stories from people who plead their innocence saying that something was contaminated um it's so so often supplements rather than anything else obviously mm-hmm. there was that that period in time where everyone seemed to be having tainted beef, uh, which I don't know mm-hmm. know where that excuse has gone now. But um, yeah, the the and that's one of the big reasons I don't take any supplements, um, even though yep. yeah, the two big reasons for me behind no supplements is they can be hard to get with all the travel, and then also just the risk of contamination. So for me, that yep. risk doesn't outweigh the reward that I would get from taking supplements. But that's the biggest thing I just try to enforce to athletes is just um yeah the the amount that you have to lose from that and uh the the thing nowadays is it just like tarnishes your name and for riders these days the brand is almost worth more than the the legs that you've got and the amount of races you're winning and if you're Mm -hmm. if you have any association with that even if um even if it's contested and uh, you, it comes back okay, uh, it can just completely destroy your career from that aspect. So, yeah, that's that's where we're at on the testing. Um, and then, like, the, there's so many things that they're testing for, So, and some tests are easier than others. So testosterone, for example, there's a pretty good test now for synthetic testosterone. It shows up quite different to testosterone that's produced in the body. Uh, and then the the blood doping is a really difficult one to pick up. There's tests for the lining that's used in the blood bags. There's tests for, mm. um, yeah, the the needles that are, would be used to inject it for these tiny little um, trace substances. But that's where the biological passport is the, the main thing that they're relying on. And then there's testing for the EPO, which is notoriously hard to test for. If you've heard any of Lance's interviews or read Tyler Hamilton's book, they'll vouch for that, that that's how they were getting away with it because there was no EPO test. The EPO that's, um, your, that riders would take is identical um, to what you would pick up 
um, from just the actual EPO that's within their body. Like EPO is a hormone that you would produce naturally, erythropoietin, um, yeah. and yeah, this basically just stimulates red blood cell growth. But did you have anything else you wanted to add on the testing side of things? Um, I had one question for you before we get into testing, though. Um, yep. Here's a random question. Uh, there are so there's supplement. Um, that sponsor pro cycling teams. Yeah. Are you more comfortable using those supplements? If yeah. So there's these, know, those riders are using. Yeah. There's these tags those? now. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't know the, the names of them. Uh, I'm probably going to have to, to look that up and, and uh, put it in the show notes, but there's these tags where they're getting third parties to test their supplements to make sure that they're not contaminated, that um, it's all above board. So it's from, it, from it more ISO? Trust- what was that? Is it is it ISO? Uh, ISO certification? Yeah. There, there's multiple different um, companies that will do it. Uh, and it also depends on the country you're in. I know Australia has um, two different ones that the AIS recommends, and I don't know the name of them. Um the WADA website is actually really good for this. So like they've, they'll have all their accredited third-party testing things which will test these supplements. And generally with cycling-specific brands like like an SIS or a, um, I don't want to drop too many names here for free, but the, mm. the cycling-specific brands will have better testing because they know the, the risks involved. The things mm-hmm. that we're always told to be wary of as athletes is the bodybuilder brands because yeah. bodybuilders largely aren't tested, um, like mm-hmm. given that most are just amateur and just trying to look shredded and put on some some muscle. Like the that's where you risk the cross-contamination, not necessarily like the protein powder isn't intentionally just loaded up with steroids, but if they're producing... Um, some banned substances in the same factory, then that's what you risk. And these tests now for the agents are so, um, yeah, they can just pick up the tiniest amounts. So that's like you, you're never hearing these findings of, oh, we found so much of this in this person's, but it's always just a absolutely minute amount. But the main thing that every single contract that we sign and every single anti-doping uh, education program that we do just locks mm-hmm. in that the complete liability is with the athlete so yep. no matter where it came from um like even if you're recording the batch number and it turns out that the batch was contaminated you're still disqualified you can get bans overturned but ultimately um if you're competing with a banned substance in your blood or in your urine or whatever that's giving you an advantage you're disqualified that's next to your name forever so the, as an athlete, there's just so much to lose there uh, by doing that kind of thing. And that's, I guess, where I just see it as I find it hard to believe that people would risk so much now um, with all of that stuff going against them and just, yeah, putting their career in jeopardy and their name in jeopardy because, like, yeah, you, you see... Um, there's plenty of examples of people that have made a good career after their doping career um, in other things, but ultimately being labeled to cheat forever isn't uh, going to be something that you want to have associated with you. So the the deterrent for me, I hope, is enough that the vast majority of cyclists now aren't doping. 
Yeah. I mean, um, to get back to the supplement thing real quick with the, I mean, I had an athlete that was going to worlds and I, you know, I was like, well, we can try some beetroot supplement. It's super cheap. It's been shown to have benefits. If it doesn't have any benefit, then you're out like almost nothing. Yeah. But then it gets into that supp- the risks of the, the contaminations and the supplements. The more supplements you take, the higher the risk of that. So I definitely said, well, make sure you hold on to all the wrappers all right, and yeah. file them somewhere or at least take pictures of all the lot numbers and that type of thing Yeah, and, and, and have them. Uh, or even just, I don't even know if they would take this or not, but like making sure you don't, if you don't take all of the sample and they find it, you know, I don't know exactly how that all would work. But like I said, you're still going to get disqualified. Yeah. You just might be lucky enough to get the band overturned and save face. Yeah. And we don't want to, we don't want to scare people from ever eating anything again. Like obviously like it's pretty rare. And the, I still think a lot of those, those uh, high profile stories you hear of the contamination is just a bullshit excuse. Um, But uh, I'm also sure that there's some that riders have unintentionally taken a banned substance because of that. So the yeah, the thing to take away is just to to be super careful, uh, especially with the the amount of testing and how good the testing is. Like even if it is accidental, it's it's still just not something that you want next to your name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in terms of my thoughts on the testing and stuff like that, um, I mean I've done. Uh, clinical type tests um, that's I've run analytical chemistry type stuff and done ELISAs and that type of thing but you know that was just for research purposes but I could see how these things could get messed up and that type of thing but you would hope they would have those processes down pretty pat and have be yeah. pretty fail safe um, but there's always the chance for false positives yeah yeah. Um, but I'm sure those are pretty minute. Yeah. And the other thing, well, it gets into an interesting kind of conversation about Bayesian statistics. And like, um, if you have something that happens very rarely and there's, um, and you, and there's like maybe a 1% false positive, um, within the test and it's, um, even a one percent false positive rate, if you're doing the testing yeah. enough, still ends up being significant. Definitely, especially when you're talking about people's lives. Yeah. So, I guess actually knowing the actual um, false positive rate for these tests would be and interesting. The and how they counter that? Yeah, the, is the, that with the two samples? Yeah, that's counted with the A and B sample. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, all all the urine and blood. Um, provided as an A and B sample goes into an A and B sample, and what is supposed to happen is the initial positive is supposed to be kept completely between the rider, the UCI, and the team. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, it gets out like stuff gets leaked all the time mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. Like it's a massive sell to a journalist to have that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So there's a high profile one with one of the. Um, Oh, with, with Chris Froome um, was one where it was uh, that's a few years back now with the salbutamol, but that was, um, yeah, that it's, uh, went through a whole thing that was supposed to be completely kept under wraps and w- was leaked and then he ended up being 
Um, yeah, he didn't have to face any penalty, uh, for, and that was for supposedly ta- having taken too much of salbutamol, which was a legal substance. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, there's certain limits to some substances which are legal, and then also, um, yeah, the another one recently was Toon Arts, one of the uh, highest ranked cyclocross riders from Belgium. Uh, he supposedly unknowingly took a banned substance. Um, and the like the A sample um, came up. The team was alerted. That was leaked, and then uh, so you are still, I think, allowed to compete after the A substance is released. Normally, the team would just prevent it because if it's if it turns out that it was um, that that if it was you were actually doping. Um, so if the B sample comes up positive as well, then all of those results are obviously excluded as well. Uh, but yeah, usually the the rider and the team are alerted after the A sample is positive, and then the B sample is checked again. Um, and then if that comes up negative, then yeah, because as you said, one percent um, is is pretty high when you're testing hundreds of athletes every day. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you then are timesing that one in a hundred by one in a hundred again, uh, you'd have to be pretty unlucky to get two false positives um and you'd hope that most tests are obviously less than one percent false positive even but yeah that the if if you are doing enough like yeah it's as you said with, with the statistics side of it when there's that much testing going on uh, there are still chances of that happening yeah so the next thing this is probably the bit that if anyone of the big journos jump on this is these are the things they love to get insight on but the the stuff that i've actually seen at the top level so uh up until this contract coming up i've only ridden with one world tour team um and yeah at that racing it definitely like there was jokes from riders about um not not stuff that they'd been part of but like for example the the team bus we were in had at the back of the bus all of these compartments um and like in the the back area where there's all these almost false cupboards um and then the riders had like joked how one of the the false cupboards had came out and just said oh that would have been really useful back in the day and the thing is like not, not many people realize those team buses like are re- repurposed and just rewrapped each year so like who knows who owned that that team bus that we had um before we had it we had it but yeah, that was um, interesting to be a part of and just see that, yeah, there's all these false like, cupboard doors in the back of a, a team bus. And so basically the, the joke that they're making is back in the day you would have riders hooked up to IVs in there um, after the stages and then obviously all the curtains are closed on the bus, no one's seeing in. Um, and then, yeah, you've just got the the bags and everything just stored in those cupboards. Um so that that was one thing I saw, and then like I was obviously reassured by the fact that the riders were saying back in the day rather than ah oh, yeah when we did it, um, which and then but I don't know how openly obviously riders would talk about that. And then the other thing um, that I did notice is riders showing up to uh, like so these were one day races I was doing with like a tin full of pills and like the mm-hmm. the pills i'm i, I would say 95 99 well, percent sure everything in there was completely legal 
Um, this was in the days before the tramadol ban, so I like I didn't see what any of the pills were, but like I was writing as a stagiaire at the time, and I'd, I'd been told in the team meeting just before everyone gets their kid out to to put on like the team meetings on the bus. I get told, okay, your job is to get in the early break, and then when the break gets caught, you're doing this on the final circuits. So one of the teammates then says, okay, well, um, have this before the start to get in the break and then you need this just before you get caught so you've got a bit extra on the final circuits and then my response was just now nah, be okay thanks and then um yeah that writer who was a senior writer on the team his response was no it's completely fine like um you don't have to worry about um anything like that everything in here has been tested and i would believe him on that because he's going to get tested after the race if anything's banned it's going to show up um anything in a pill form is going to be the easiest thing to detect. But um, if I was to guess, um, and I've got no idea what these were because they're not labelled um, other than just the, the pure colour, but I know tramadol use was really heavy uh, up until the ban um, and that's what um, Quintana was tested positive for. But tramadol is just a, a painkiller, um, which was... Uh, I'm still yet to fortunately have to take tramadol because I haven't required any painkiller that strong before. Um, but yeah, from all reports, makes you uh, makes it harder to see and harder to react to things. So it was just deemed too dangerous. Uh, there wasn't any danger really associated from a health perspective, um, other than the fact that it could cause more crashes. Uh, and then whether it was actually advantageous was always. Um, more debatable it was more I think banned for the the danger factor and then I'd I'd suggest the majority of other stuff is probably just stimulants so um, just caffeine guarana and basically anything that's that's going to be legal that's uh, been shown to to have some effect um, that way and yeah like the the tricky thing is just obviously there's uh, aids that have, are shown to improve performance that are legal and it doesn't look mm. good having like so um, that team I don't think had a no pill policy but I know some teams have a no pill policy but it's a tough one because uh, I'm not someone that uses paracetamol um, regularly I forget what's uh, what's it called in the US I think that's a Tylenol yeah Tylenol yeah, yeah. Um, it's not I'm not someone that's that uses it regularly but i've certainly had to use it times i've had like been racing with a separated ac joint or with just a bad enough cold that you take a cold and flu med before the start and that of course has like paracetamol or tylenol or whatever in it um but i know riders are using that quite regularly as well as painkillers again like the literature on whether that actually helps um is like very debatable and uh, the the yeah. main reason that i've would avoid it is just that I've never found that the pain is something that's limiting me from performing. Um, but yeah, the, there is a lot still being used in that regard. And I'd love to be able to say that everyone's racing without, with off bread and water, but I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that now where I'm basically sitting on it is that teams are using absolutely everything possible that's legal because um yeah the the risks with doing something illegal are so high but uh teams are looking for any gain that they can possibly get so if they think that there's going to be some gain from paracetamol and caffeine then they're going to use that 
um, as as good as they possibly can, as well as they possibly can. And then I'm sure that there's other well ketones as well as another one completely uh, legal, but um, yeah, another substance that uh, only some riders might be using. But yeah, there, there's going to be a long list of things that I'm sure riders believe have an effect is pretty short list of things that we've actually seen any good effect in trained athletes of actually being beneficial that isn't uh, that substances that aren't already banned uh but yeah where i'm basically sitting at the moment is i think um athletes are the, at the top level um uh there's there's teams doing absolutely everything within the boundaries that they possibly can um and yeah, I, I don't think that there's too much anything more than that on a team level at the the world tour side of things. I'm sure you'll get riders that are blatantly cheating and obviously some will get away with it. We hope most get caught. But I think on a team level that uh, the systematic doping, I think, has, has gone now. Yeah, well, it gets into that conversation I think we had um, earlier in the year or maybe last year even about how the riders are saying that it uh, it's just getting faster and yeah. it was kind of multifactorial. Yeah. And oh, I hate that argument. I've just got to get in there now. Like everyone just keeps saying, how are they breaking records? How are they possibly going faster? Look at the bikes that we're using now and like the tech and the nutrition compared to what Lance was doing. Like even just like Lance's 2001 bike, I saw a photo of it the other day. And I was like, how the hell is that still the fastest time up? Oh, Pantani, I think, has fastest time on outdoors. But like some of those things, just like how could they possibly ride it that much faster? Um, and then, yeah, like even just like you look at the nutrition kind of things they were doing, the, the training like compared to what we have now, um, yeah, that shows you how much of a difference doping does make. Of course, we're going to be getting to the point where we're exceeding that, but you'd hope so with the fact that bikes have improved that much since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But, but one of the things that's kind of interesting with the doping is what actually gets on the ban list, um, which, you know, speaking from a skeptic's point of view and maybe a little bit more of a libertarian lean about, well, maybe we should try to minimize what's on that list as much as possible because a lot of those things are drugs that have helpful effects for people. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe we shouldn't, some of those things, you know, without looking at the list uh, directly or like having an example on the top of my head, like some of them are like, well, does this really help? Or because you could think of like how it wouldn't help. Yeah. And one of the examples would be like amphetamines. Like you could take amphetamines. Well, amphetamines, weed is on the banned list. Like no yeah. one's smoking a joint before a race and yeah. performing better. That's on the banned list because it's unsafe. And there's a lot of things uh, like I, I'd say... Oh, probably more stuff is on the ban list because of safety. Um, yeah. And that's probably what we'll get into with our last topic of on why shouldn't we just let everyone dope. But a lot of the, the reasoning is just safety. Um, yeah. Like both from a, like if, yeah. if you're obviously high, like if your blade is trying to ride through a Peloton, you're going to be, be less safe to your competitors. The same way that if you're on amphetamines, there is an increased risk of cardiac arrest. Um, mm-hmm. it might not necessarily well, be beneficial as an ergogenic. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, I mean, if you're on amphetamines, you could argue that you're actually safer because you're less likely to crash. Yeah. 
better reflexes. But the other side of the amphetamines is, well, maybe it's affecting your sleep. And yeah. now that's affecting your recovery. So yeah. Being on those drugs yeah. could actually be hurting you yeah. in some ways. Right. Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm not going to nitpick all of these things. I just hope that the people that are the authorities that are in charge of that are not putting things on the list um, when they don't need to be on the list because yeah. they're just by, by feel. Oh, there might be a chance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't seem fair for like if the person actually needs it. Yeah. And um cycling's list is the longest as well um so cycling has some um substances like tramadol is one of those where it's not banned in any other sport uh it's cycling is the only one that it's banned the the reason's pretty clear that they're worried about crashes but yeah that's important to like cycling gets the bad rap but we have the most testing and the, the longest banned substance list there there's good reason for that because doping is so effective in cycling but yeah, that that's the rationale there. Um, yeah, like the the thing then, like it always comes to this, and this is the argument that everyone always has. I'm interested to hear what you have to add to this one, Jason. But like, the, everyone always just says, "Why don't they let everyone dope?" Um, and then we just see we see people flying up the hill. Um, then like the, we just see the the best racing, the fastest racing that we've ever had before. These superhumans. And like to me, that is an absolute nightmare. But I'll let you go first before. Well, I'll get yeah, we'll get into that a little bit deeper in, in a second here. Um, but um, yeah, so one of the drugs that I've come across, or the pharmaceutical drugs that I've come across, that has actually been shown to have performance improvements at altitude, um, is not banned, and that is Viagra. Now, yeah. Right. Why is that? Well, is it because with the men, they just have a, a raging erection during their, during their race? Maybe they wouldn't want to necessarily be on Viagra when they're climbing at altitude. But then, but then would female athletes wouldn't have to necessarily worry about that. And actually, it was approached by a female athlete that was curious about this. Should I take this? It was an amateur athlete. And she wasn't someone I was, was with. She just knew that I was working at my doctorate and wanted to be wanted some input on it and i was like well i guess it's not illegal but like is it moral yeah 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 and that's a tough argument with a lot of those those things um and yeah like where i sit on it is yeah i i prefer to be completely transparent with it but at the moment the the only thing i would use is caffeine um i don't even like using paracetamol because i've seen a little bit on nsaids with the the increased risk of uh, heart attacks, um, and like it's it's very much either way. There's, I think, last I checked, there's five studies: two go one way, three go the other, um, mm-hmm. on whether there's actually any cause and effect there. Um, but yeah, I don't like the idea of using painkillers. So for me, at the moment, it's it's just caffeine. Um, whether that'll change, whether I get um, encouraged to use anything else through the team uh will be really interesting and i hope i'm allowed to be transparent with that i assume i will be and i'll try to be but um yeah at the moment i'm just very limited on that side of things but i know there's plenty of people just pushing those boundaries as far as they possibly can yeah yeah so uh for my segment or my portion of the show i wanted to ask you a few questions around this because you are the resident pro athlete here so um, 
Back in 2014, I attended a bioethics symposium that was at UW Wisconsin. And uh, they recorded all that, and I went looking for the recordings of the presentations, and they no longer have them up. But the conversation was a debate, was pro-performance-enhancing drugs versus um, anti-performance-enhancing uh, drugs in sport. And so the big presenter there was a medical doctor named Norman Foster. He is at the UW Wisconsin, and I actually did find a debate that he did in 2008 where it was almost word for word the exact same thing as he presented in 2014 um so i was able to find that that was, we'll put that in that link in the show notes um and it was a six-member panel with a um, person that was moderating it and and it had the pro side and the and that actually the anti side so i'm going to give you some of the counter arguments to the anti-doping, uh, the anti-performance enhancing drug people. And I wanted to get your feedback on it. Now, uh, I want to be very clear that I am not, uh, I do not have this position, but I think it is interesting to entertain both sides of the argument so that people can understand it. Yep. And kind of, you don't want to silence one side of the argument, right? Yeah. You want to understand both sides of the argument so you know which one has the better argument. Now, one thing I'll say with the with the doctors and in, in that you kind of see that the doctors get involved in this and they've actually asked doctors, like, would you, if an athlete came to you and they needed this drug for performance enhancing, would you do it? And I guess there's a, a fair amount of them that would. And, and you say, well, that's preposterous. Now that's in the sports world, like we're upset by that, but in the medical world, that has to do with um, patient autonomy, yeah. right? And allowing the athlete to make choices about their own health. And so that gets tricky with them. So they're the medical professional in that sense is there to facilitate better health. And so if they, if you say you have a master's rider that you're a doctor and they come to you and they have low T levels, low testosterone levels for their for their age group, you're going to give them testosterone. Yeah. Right? And you're not necessarily going to really care if they race on the weekends or anything like that. Yep. Right? And you're like, good, go ahead, have fun. Like, yeah. But in our world, no, if you're going to take testosterone, then don't show up to races. Right? Yeah, well, I had that exact example like with a endocrinologist in Australia, like just uh, went at what like we're seeing an endocrinologist and he just advised, oh, yeah, you, you could probably do with this. Um, and then it was my thing was just, well, I can't take that because of this. And he's like, oh, well, if you want to be healthier, you should be taking this. And like he, he wasn't a sports endocrinologist at all. Then I went mm -hmm. to a sports endocrinologist with a bit more background. But his whole thing was just, I don't care about your racing. Like, you, mm -hmm. if I want to get you to a full level of health, you need to take this, which was banned substance. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, that was really interesting to go, oh, hang on, it's not illegal. It's just that, like, exactly. um, yeah, it's completely lawful um, and this would actually make me more healthy, but I can't take it because of this reason, because I want to be able to race. Yeah, yeah. From the, the I guess, the pro-performance-enhancing drug side, 
the first thing that they would note is they would concede that um, the doping is absolutely wrong if it is done against the rules. So if the rules have been set in the sport that, that um, certain substances are banned for consumption and you take them, then you are a cheater. And all, if you're cheating in any way, then you should be banned, right? Yeah. But the pro-performance enhancement drug side, their argument says, well, why are these illegal? And should they be illegal, right? Not necessarily if you get caught right now, oh, he should, we should let him off the hook. It's like, no, that's very black and white. If you get caught doping and the rules that you shouldn't have be doing this, then you should be banned, Yeah, right? So these are bioethics for people, right? So they are into the philosophy of things and looking for intellectual honesty and philosophical consistency. And so Norman Foss would have, he has six things he has issues with, with the anti-doping side of the argument. And the first one is the claim that Doping gives an unfair advantage or a, an advantage that is not, not natural, right? Well, someone from this standpoint would say this is hypocritical and this is inconsistent because, you know, the Ineos has more money than all the other team. So is that an unfair advantage because they get yeah. to have a lot more money? Yeah. Um, if you have new technology that uh, cycling was rolling out bikes and hiding their technology before they went into the Olympics. That's an unfair advantage. So unfair advantage happens in sport all the time. Yeah. So he says that's kind of hypocritical. And not only that, but like a lot of people that judge athletes that have been caught for doping take performance enhancing drugs themselves, right? So um, to be very clear, I'm not pro performance enhancing drug, but yeah, I'll just, so what do you what do you think about that? It's pretty hard to counter that argument. Like, oh, it, it, sport isn't fair. If it was, it wouldn't be very fun. <laughs> like the the whole idea is like, yeah, we want we want fair sport. I probably shouldn't say fair. Sport isn't equal. So like, mm-hmm. everyone's trying to gain an advantage. You, some are going to be gaining more advantage than others through other means, of course. So the where my counter there comes from, well. There's already uh, so so much. We need somewhere where we can say no, like that you can't get any advantage on the physiology side of things, other than training and nutrition. We're not going to allow stuff on top of that. Obviously, there are supplements that are that are legal, um, but uh, yeah, the my thing is well, I'm already at such a disadvantage from things like. Not now it's a different story, but as a junior, for example, I already can't afford as nice a bike as the kid down the road whose dad is a doctor. I can't um, get to the races as easily because I live further away. Like all of these little things um, that you're just thinking, well, it would be then unfair if someone with the extra money can also dope as well or that with the contacts can then dope as well when... Uh, so many riders don't have access to that. So obviously, it that's just using the same thing to the other side, though, because it's just saying, well, there are advantages. There shouldn't be an extra one. Whereas, mm-hmm. um, yeah, obviously the anti-anti-doping people are saying, well, it's just the same as all the other advantages. So yeah, it is, it is really tough one to counter that. Um, I, yeah. I wouldn't. That's not where I'd be coming at the argument from if I was uh, w- when I'm saying yeah. that we shouldn't ha- allow it. 
Yeah, and their argument would be that you know if you made it legal, then you could moderate it, right? Yeah, because it'd be safer. But the yeah. thing is, is you're still going to even if, if it was legal, you're still going to have people that are taking illegal amounts. Of it. Yeah, and the other thing for me looking at it, I would be like, okay. I'm having to buy a bike that's multiple thousands of dollars and putting all this stuff into just gear, pun intended. <laughs> now you're putting into this other gear, right? Um, pun not intended, but it was a good one. Um, but it's just a cost thing too. It's again, yeah. it's, I don't want to have to like go to a doctor and spend yeah. the however much money. But the counter of that is like, well, you can spend thousands of dollars on an altitude yeah. tent to get the blah, 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 blah. But yeah, it, it does go back and forth. It's not clear cut, but like I, I prefer, actually prefer the way it is right now because I prefer if I can just ride my bike and not put a needle in my van, right? Yeah. Especially since I don't like needles very much, right? Yeah, oh, for me, for sure. Like there's a, I'm, it was enough of a hassle for me organizing all these blood tests for the UCI to try and get those done here now when no one wants to work before Christmas. Imagine if I also had to meet up with a doctor to be microdosing all of this stuff like that. Maybe you wouldn't have to microdose it. Uh, you probably would have to microdose because it'd be a certain level that's legal. Um, and then, yeah, if I was meeting up with a doctor multiple times a week as well, I just think that's so much hassle uh, yeah. would be my thing against against that to, yeah. to counter that argument. The other counter to that would be like, to, well, why don't we do what the bodybuilders do? We have a natural and, an, and a yeah. non-natural category. Yeah. But again, and then like you're splitting at the sport and like... yeah. I'd, yeah, what happens if someone wants to leave the doping leave and go in the other way? It's already hard enough to get positions on teams. Yeah, Like say this doping team has an opening, but, but this other or or maybe a, a clean team has yeah. has an opening and like you were on the doping league, does that mean you can go over to the other one or a washout period? That, again, it gets really sticky. So I personally, I just like, yeah, let's just not yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's not go down that way. Yeah. Um, so the other claim that is given by the anti-performance enhancing drug individuals is that drugs are harmful. Um, and the pro-performance enhancing drug group would say that these claims have been overblown, right? Yes, yes, there are detrimental things from taking testosterone and, and that type of thing. And some of these drugs, all drugs have side effects. But a lot of the side effects of the drugs are not as risky as a lot of the sports themselves. Actually, like cycling has more deaths in it than, than you yeah. potentially get from taking growth hormone, right? Yeah, and I've heard the other argument in that is that it can be safer with them because then you don't have to train as hard. Um, and, yeah. you know, like... I don't know because we don't have that many studies and because I've obviously never doped myself like the, and a lot of the deaths, it's like pretty shady even around like all these ones in the fifties and sixties, seventies, even guys dropping dead in the Tour de France. Like the, we just don't know because it's pretty rough on the family to say this guy died cause he was like full to the gills with all these different drugs. Um, like no family wants to lose someone and then also have them just touted as a cheater. So it's tough to know how how that health argument really falls. Mm-hmm. The thing that I just have like hearing all the stories about the guys having to get up and run on the treadmill in the middle of the night 
because they're worried about um, yeah blood clots uh, because there's um, yeah their blood's so thick uh, or they're just full of like the hematocrit's so high um, mm-hmm. the yeah things like that I just think oh that sounds like an absolute nightmare it's like stressful enough um, the the sport from the the health side of things anyway um not so yeah like obviously the the training side like you can get worried of oh, am i doing more damage here and taking years off my life but also just the yeah. the crashing side knowing that every single race something really bad could happen um and then to also yeah. have things like this added in where you're then having to worry about increased risk of blood clots um yeah the other other side effects like you just don't want to add in that extra stuff. It's a dangerous enough sport as it is. Why would you, why would you put your health more in danger? I think the the other side of the argument would say, well, we're still just going to cap the hematocrit, like we're going to clamp the hematocrit at fifty percent or yeah. whatever they have it at right now, right? So yeah, basically, you just take enough EPO to get yourself up to the level that's legal. Yeah, and then I find that harsh on the people that are like I would that from for me I'd love it like my natural is 41 42 it's it's around there and i just think geez imagine if i could dope and get it to 50 um yeah and like and then there's the person that's naturally at 49 um mm-hmm. and they can't do that but then yeah like the yeah it, it's a tricky one then because you think well um what if i do all these other interventions that are legal and try and get it to there and then you get the people just saying well why go through all of that like the hassle of going to altitude the risks associated with that as jerome mentioned the the detrimental effects of being of altitude training when you could simply just um inject some EVO or put a blood bag in um so mm. yeah i can see the health sides um both directions but for me just like the, the thought of having to to go to those levels that i can't be producing myself just doesn't feel right and i'd be far more worried like if the anxiety personally from a safety perspective of having to chuck in a needle or the extra blood that i didn't create myself right there um yeah that would be that'd be a lot more worrying for me than simply the the normal interventions that we use yeah and another argument from the pro, I call them the pro doping side, um, pro legal doping. I don't know, but they would, their response to you would be, you're not entitled to a place in the sport, which is pretty harsh, right? Like there's like, there's nothing that says you have to do this. Like you can go teach school or whatever, you know, instead of being a pro cyclist. Yeah. And you just say, yeah, someone else that's more, more keen to do it will do that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And then they can, jump in and do it which is already the case for you anyways right because yeah. you're more keen to ride your bike a bunch yeah yeah than exactly. somebody else that might have as more gift as a more gifted um biology right like yeah you know, just natural talent but they just don't have any kind of drive to ride their bike as much as you do yeah so it's again i like the way the things are yeah but you have to know the other side of the argument here to yeah. to make sure that well maybe you can come up with better carnage counters to the pro side yeah. so that we can keep it out of the sport right so yeah. it doesn't sneak in yeah um another one of the claims that they have problems with is they would say like athletes would be forced to use these but 
and then they report some numbers that doping is is actually really low in sports like baseball and stuff like that. But like these numbers are super debatable, and I don't think that would be the case in cycling. I think if doping was legal, like you have to be on it. They put everybody on it at the world tour level for sure. If it was legal, yeah. And from reports of like guys I I've worked with um, in teams that or just associated with that were like similar level to me um just trying to try and get into big teams um early 2000s uh just said they were like given the option you're either on our team and you're on the program or you're not and Mm -hmm. they they obviously never had pro careers because they weren't on the program but it seemed very much like um that in those times which is what you'd get back to again if you obviously made it legal but yeah i think in cycling the advantage is too big uh, if you made it legal, then everyone would have to be on it or you just simply couldn't compete. Um, yeah, sure, you could get to a, a higher level than other people that were on it um, because you're genetically better or whatever, but you're never going to be the best if you are not on it in that instance. Um, and, yeah, I'm really happy that there's no situation now. Like, well, I hope there's no situation where I'm ever going to be having that conversation with someone saying if you want to be in it you've got to get onto this program because yeah there's absolutely no sign of that happening in the sport at this point mm-hmm. um the other claim is that doping will disinterest the fans and then the pro doping side would say well the fans don't seem to care but i would counter counter that with like would the, if, if the whole field was doped would the fans even see a difference? I mean, it's it, yeah from the cycling the perspective. Like you, you just well, yeah, and that's why like um, cycling is a rare sport. I mean, we see the increase in we we see the increase in popularity in women's sport. And yeah. no offense to anybody, there's a lower amount of power. But like, yeah. does but does velocity have to be the speed have to have right? No, that's what I was going to say. Like the that's why uh, women's cycling is at such a advantage compared to some women's sports because it's the just as good to watch if not better because of the way that the races are structured at the moment um mm-hmm. shorter but the yeah at no point are you watching thinking oh i can't believe that they're going 2k or 3k an hour slower um yeah and that's essentially what we're being robbed of by the whole peloton not being doped at the moment is i don't know if it would yeah. be any better watching everyone going, oh, where are they going two or three K an hour faster right now? Like the, well, there's, yeah. there's, there's, but actually when you think about it, there's an argument for injuries there too. If you're going faster on a bike, yeah, you're just, you're hitting things harder when you crash. Yeah. Right? yeah. So that, that's already the thing that I personally don't like quite as much about how far we've come with aerodynamics is the fact that now most races were averaging high forties. If there's like almost all of those, one day races I did in Belgium last year was 47, 48k an hour average. So you, you think about if you're going to crash at some point in that, it's going to be pretty fast. So yeah, I don't necessarily want races to be averaging 51, 52k an hour from a safety perspective. I'm quite mm-hmm. happy with yeah being a little bit safer. I've seen some of the kit for, I think it was DSM that was coming out as like crash resistant now. Yeah. Yeah, there's, and like obviously bike tech becomes more safe as well but ultimately we're still going to just be a 
skin on road with a just a shitty little foam helmet saving us. So yeah, the, uh, faster isn't necessarily going to be better from a, a viewing perspective, and certainly not from a safety perspective. Yeah. Um, another one is um, it will undermine the integrity of records if they don't. And um, again, it comes back to new technology is always breaking old records, which yeah. is true. But it's yeah. unique in cycling because we had the Eddie Merckx time trial uh, yeah. stipulations or what are rules you want to say for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, the UCI has been anti-technology on at least one of their records for a while. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, I don't know. It's not a great argument to me. Um, the, the records are always going to be. Yeah. And I'm just thinking now already with records, on Strava, you would nearly need the dope versus non-dope leaderboard, like a filter. <laughs> you can, you can uh, look at the segment leaderboards to to look at the two things. And then, yeah, obviously, like even then, you've then just got people cheating, being in the wrong group. Yeah, and the last argument from the anti-doping um, side of it is that doping has a bad influence on children and that we're aspiring athletes. And I think people who are okay with performance enhancing, enhancing drugs being legalized, uh, they would also agree that the drugs should be banned with children. So I'll say it one more time. I am not in this group. I yeah. just wanted to um, bring their arguments to light and have people yeah. judge for themselves and be able to... Yeah, when you like when you listen to it as the arguments, they're, they're pretty well presented, but like... Still, I mean, it came from a medical doctor who is, yeah, you know, is bioethics, guy, yeah, right. So it's it's a it's a tough one, but like for me as a writer, a hundred percent, I'm not taking that world ever. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I think sure. I struggle to find any writer that would take that world because the the dopers that are doping now are doing it because they want to win. Like they're doing it because they're cheating and getting an advantage. I don't think mm-hmm. even they'd sign up for a world where everyone can because then yeah. they're not getting the advantage so i'd be amazed if you ran an anonymous survey with every pro rider if there was more i'd be amazed if there was a single person that voted yes to allowing it and like i can tell you one thing riders absolutely hate the amount of testing that goes on like it's just like i i obviously don't get tested anywhere near as much as some of these guys but it is painful just every single time thinking oh, i'm going to be here tomorrow instead of where i thought i was going to be having people show up at your door at 5 a.m. because that's when you know you're going to be home um, waiting around for two hours after a race till you can pee. But I 100% would take that over having dopers in the sport. Like, and most riders would be the same. You well, you wouldn't lose that. That would probably still be there. Even yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you still you still have the same thing because it's going to be moderated. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for me, I don't see... So they're still going to check your doping levels. Yeah. Right? Yep. So all that's still going to be there. For me, I don't see any any gain personally. Like, I, and yeah, I'd be, but yeah, for for the fans, um, I don't I don't know if they're they're gonna also many you get many fans that would genuinely prefer to see a completely doped peloton versus now. I think the issue is the fact that we know that there's some people in the peloton that still will be cheating at any point in time. Uh, I don't think yeah. that there's the systematic doping um 
when there is like the WFD, W52 Porto team, the Portuguese team. Um, yeah, like the, there was a tip-off there, police raid, everyone done. Um, like there's so many sort of tip-offs now. There's so much reporting, um, especially nowadays with like everyone having phones, um, everything being easily recordable Uh now like for teams to get away with it i'd be absolutely amazed um like team stuff gets leaked um all of the time so for a team to be able to systematically dope now i'd be absolutely astonished for anyone to do it and get away with it so i think you just have the individuals that are trying to get that advantage but um yeah the there's always going to be a few and some will go get away without getting caught i think most are getting caught but Ideally, we get to a point where you can still watch the the Tour de France and know that it is really a a playing field where everyone is. It's never a level playing field because otherwise everyone will cross the line at exactly the same time. But uh, yeah, at at a point where you can watch it and know that there's there's some level of fairness about it and it creates a good spectacle because that's what's best for the sport. In your imaginary hole that you are taking there with the world tour riders and you know the pro tour like those guys at the arguably the top interchangeable top two tiers right yeah um you think that would be almost all would say no i wouldn't do it but it'd be you know many people would be against you know that's the people that are happy with where they're at arguably yeah that's very true so i wonder how that would yeah. change if you had the lower categories the people are at the that the at the lower yeah. level and they were like well you're what, a conti pro or something like that or a depot yeah. team yeah obviously obviously people that are over 18 yeah and you would ask them would you be involved in a, a league of cyclists that were uh, performance enhancing that we're using performance hunting drugs within the, within. Yeah. And they, but the thing is they'd probably say yes, but then they'd forget that all those guys, <laughs> like, like yeah. there's still, there'd be guys that are a lot faster than them. Like you're not going to be able to dope and then be one of the fast guys. You're just yeah. going to be doping probably still in yeah. the, in the Conti league, right? You're just going to be yeah. faster in the Conti. And there would be the people with heaps of money sitting there. Like, um, access to a doctor that knows what they're doing um it's like easily available equipment and just thinking yeah sign me up straight away i'll be able to do this better than anyone else um so you are probably right there in that there is the the survey that i'd be doing wouldn't be the people with the most to gain um but yeah i think um yeah if you're looking at anyone that has done hard yards to get to the top of the sport they're they're pretty happy with where they're at. And yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that, um, except maybe someone that has cheated, but you'd be hard pressed to find someone that isn't happy to have the amount of anti-doping stuff that we have in the sport now um, to create some kind of level playing field. Mm-hmm. Other than just like the hassle, right? Yeah. And then like, yeah, you'd get some people just saying, ah, oh, can't we all just agree not to do it? But, ultimately yeah, there's, there's yeah. too many incentives for that yeah and like my thing that i keep saying is just let me 
send a constant live location to WADA so that they can follow me around rather than having to big brother yeah, <laughs> update all of these things. Um, but yeah, obviously so much privacy stuff going on there um, that that can't happen. Maybe one day it will happen at the top level. Um, but yeah, like there is a big money investment, like the amount of money that's pumped into anti-doping is absolutely huge. Like a cut of all of the prize money that we get has to go to the anti-doping and cut of all of the team budgets, their bonds to the UCI goes to anti-doping. The UCI money goes to anti-doping, the TV rights. Like it, it's, it's expensive to do it. Um, but there's a reason that we do it. Um, and yeah, it's, the system isn't perfect, but I think it's better than it ever has been. Uh, and I think it's only going to keep improving. Yeah. I, like I said, as it gets better, hopefully there's less people in there. It sucks to be, also to watch it and just be like, and then you hear about this rider who had a really good performance and now people are having yeah. their doubts. Yeah. Um, you know, I was reading some of the stuff that, that was written in the science sport blog around the time that Froome and Sky were doing really well. He's like, we've seen this before. Yeah, we've seen these lieutenants. Yeah, and you're always climb with world class. And but the thing is, they bring valid points, but it is still at the same time. It's like, yeah, okay, it's still so fresh. (laughs) Yeah, and when you look at the history of the Tour de France, like the guy that won the very first edition jumped on a train. Um, Yeah, it, it there's like some funny stories if you walk through the amount of cheating that's gone on in the history of our sport because it's so cheatable like um has been so cheatable before it's getting less and less so but mm-hmm. unfortunately that's the history and most of the journalists have lived that history so we'll still be skeptical um obviously now you can't jump on a train anymore but there's still or oh, there's always going to be ways to cheat we're getting we're just getting better and better at monitoring those i like to always believe in the physiological outlier i'm always going to be wrong at times like there will always be some people that do cheap but um yeah my big thing is well why can't they do that like there's always people going how can they go so fast i go well why shouldn't they be able to like i I can go at this speed, um, but what's to say that they don't have this much better genetics and they're able to train a little bit better and able to do these things a little bit better? Um, what's why, why shouldn't they be able to do that naturally? So, yeah. Oh, the, one of the things that comes out in the physiological sense is there's the reverse correlation between um, VO2 max and economy or efficiency. Yeah. So, that's where one of the things where people start going, hmm, there should be a limit. He has a really high VO2 max, but he also has a really great efficiency. What's going on here? You know? Yeah. But again, it comes on. Is it just a natural outlier? Yeah. Because that's what winning yeah. at that at the top level is. Yeah, we have, to, have to be an outlier to be that good. Yeah. Um and yeah, it's the thing, like the argument that people always use for Lance's that he was he was better anyway. Um, but like, and there's obviously going to be that if, like, if it, if I'm completely wrong and the best 20 riders at the Tour de France are all doping and someone's just doing it better than everyone else, um, I think the chances are very well of that, but ultimately you still have to be an outlier and have freakishly good physiology to be able to be the best regardless. Um, but yeah, I like to just believe that, yeah, I'm definitely someone that's worked 
as hard as I think I could at times. Like obviously had things go wrong where you think, well, if this didn't happen, I would have been better at this point or if this didn't happen, I would have been better here. But I know that there's no way I'll ever be able to produce the performances that these guys are doing, but I shouldn't be able to. It's just because I'm trying as hard doesn't mean that I should be able to do that because there's people that are trying as hard or trying harder than me that haven't even got out of Cat 2 just because they just don't have the genetics, they don't have the physiology, they, they don't have certain things that work for them. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's not like everyone can be a, a champion, um, but ultimately you want people to be able to get there by their own means. Yeah, and we've been talking a lot about the doping in the pro peloton, but like the amateur doping too is that's almost as irritating in its own way in itself, but it's, it, it, it gets tricky because it's like, okay, what happens if you're a doper and you're not, not doper, but you're taking it for, for, um, for medical reasons and then you don't compete. Uh, okay. yeah. And you rock out for some of the group rides or something like yeah. that. And you're smashing on people like that. Yeah. And the, I've seen cases of that where like former cyclists have to, have to start taking testosterone and start destroying Strava records and posting photos of the 20 minute power they're doing. And you go, Oh, holy shit. Well, that clearly does work, but what are you gaining by like, mm. um, doing that? Like some people prefer being a Strava come than winning a race, but yeah, like it, I is, think weird that, it is weird how people get satisfaction out of that. Yeah. Like getting a KOM when you're all doped up. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're different people to us anyway. <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, I, I guess it's like the plastic surgery and the Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> same yeah. same yeah. type of thing. Yeah, photoshopping a selfie. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, same kind of thing, I guess. Um, yeah, there's the whiff doping as well. We haven't touched on that, but really similar. Just like putting your weight in wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's that's a whole new episode, and we're we're gonna be careful there with future sponsorships, anyway. So, <laughs> so we'll um, we'll save that one. Did you learn anything new in this episode? Awesome! This is a listener-supported podcast, so we would be stoked if you supported us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution. With your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best in cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community for a better sport. Click the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Don't forget, Jason, Cyrus, and I offer coaching and consulting services for cyclists and teams. The links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening.